Empire. Called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today we're joined by Dr. Denna Grayson, who is a physician, a doctor, an expert in viral threats, and we're going to talk about, guess what, the coronavirus. So uh, we'll be back right after this important commercial message, and we'll be talking to Dr. Grayson. Welcome, Dr. Grayson. We'll be talking to you soon. If you're bored in the house, bored in the house, bored, why not play with your balls? Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure your balls are smooth while you or your partner are playing with them. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving your balls thanks to their Lawnmower 3.0. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. While you are probably looking for new things to do at home, why not make manscaping a part of your routine? That's what we're doing here at JATQ. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0. precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0 waterproof cordless body trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. See, inside the Perfect Package, you'll find the Manscaped Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant, and moisturizer. You're probably sitting on the couch with your hand on your balls anyway. Might as well keep them smooth as eggs and smelling fresh. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code JUSTASK at manscaped.com. So do yourself a favor and always use the right tools for the job. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code JUSTASK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use J-U-S-T-A-S-K. And we're back with Dr. Grayson, and I guess, Dr. Grayson, the title of the show is Just Ask the Question, so I'm going to just ask you the question. Uh, should we be reopening the country right now because of it's safe from the coronavirus? Well, no. This is a simple <laughs> answer, Brian. I mean, even by the Trump administration's own standards, we're not ready to open. And in fact, you know, they have said we need two things to reopen in each state. And I think it's important you have to look at, you know, states somewhat separately, albeit it's not like you can block somebody from going state to state. But the the Trump administration's own guidelines are twofold. This sort of nebulous, you've got to have the number of new new cases decreasing for 14 straight days. Now, you know, they don't give really any specific parameters, but at least that's some guidance. And then number two, you have to have, quote unquote, robust testing in place. Well, nowhere do we have robust testing in place. Every American knows that. And as to the first one, there are only 13 states where cases are declining. New York State is one of them. And, you know, Governor Cuomo would be the first to tell you, look, we're not ready to reopen because they still have a high caseload. And in 19 states, cases are actually increasing. And all of those states are reopening. 
So, you know, we know what's going to happen. When you reopen too soon, you know, the virus starts spreading. I mean, we're a little bit lucky right now because it's summer. It's not flu season. But come September, Brian, I mean, this is this is the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic all over again. We're going to see a massive, massive tsunami of cases in this second wave on top of a first wave that looks like it's not even ever going to end. Well, that uh, the president has said that other countries are looking to us for leadership and that we've done a great job uh, combating the coronavirus. Uh, your thoughts as a physician and as someone who's worked on these type of things, you, you think he's being accurate? Uh, that's a joke. It's the usual lies, lies and more lies coming from Donald Trump. The rest of the world is looking at us and saying, we don't want to be like the United States. Um, we are number one in the world with respect to confirmed cases and confirmed deaths. Now, leave aside China because China cooks the books. But outside right. China, we're number one for cases and deaths, and we're still rising. Yeah, it, uh, it's like almost 30,000 a day right now. We're up to 77,000 deaths, one point, almost 1.3 million cases. Uh, do you see this ending anytime soon? No, Brian. I mean, you know, look, I, I've been saying for months and months, and you know, when uh, we spoke a couple months ago, uh, you know, this virus is not going to go anywhere anytime soon. And, you know, the only hope that we have is a vaccine. And a vaccine is, is unfortunately still many, many months away. And, you know, right now, we're, flu season's just ending. But as I predicted several months ago, we'd start to see as we entered our summer that the Southern Hemisphere would become the new hot zone because they're entering their winter, their flu season. And we're seeing exactly that with Brazil, new hot zone, Ecuador on fire. And, and come our fall, as we enter back into our next flu season, this virus is gonna boomerang back north and we're gonna see an explosion of cases. Because remember, we got a little bit lucky in some ways. This first wave really didn't start until the latter half of our flu season. Right. So we're going to enter flu season averaging 25, 30,000 cases a day, two to 3,000 deaths per day. And then it's basically throwing gasoline, you know, kerosene on the fire, right? Just, it's going to just torch. We're going to see a massive, massive explosion of cases. It's, it, this is not hard to predict, Brian. It, have we done anything right? Have we done anything right? I think that um, once there have been a couple of state governors who were, you know, they were late, you know, as, as well as Governor Cuomo has done, he was late. I mean, he was right. late to lock down. Um, but once he did, he's done a very good job, as has Governor Newsom and a few other governors. Um, I think that they hopefully have learned their lesson, that meaning that they're going to be much, much, much more cautious and they're going to open up slowly. And then they're going to be very quick to snap back the lockdowns, which in inevitably will have to come. Um, so I hope that we've learned. Um, I think that we also lead the world in drug development um, as well. I think remdesivir is a is a success story, uh, and I hope that we end up winning on vaccines. But you know, time only time will tell. Well, as far as vaccines go, the simple fact of the matter is, there is a chance. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a chance that we may never develop a vaccine. There have been uh, plenty of viruses where we didn't develop a vaccine. So is that? also not a possibility in this case. Uh, Brian, you hit the nail right on the head. And I, you know, I truly hope like every, 
everyone, every human being on this planet, except for the kind of the, the nutty anti-vaxxers, um, you know, we all should hope that we can win with a vaccine. But there is absolutely no guarantee. Um, this, this coronavirus is a bit of a strange one. Um, you know, we'll see um, if we can develop a vaccine. I think the good news is we have the best and brightest in the, all around the world feverishly working on this. I, I think one of the other things that, um, you know, we were starting to get right is we're, we're basically going at risk with respect to the vaccine. And again, I called for this months ago, which is the way that you expedite getting a vaccine is you have to take that rubric and just throw it out, okay? So normally when you develop a vaccine, you first test it for safety, then you test to see if people get antibodies, then you see test to see if people, those antibodies actually protect people from getting an infection. And then once you have all those results, then you ramp up the production of millions of doses, but that costs you time. In this case, what I suggested months ago is let's throw a bunch of money at this and start making millions of vaccine doses today. So that way we manufacture these millions of doses in parallel to the clinical testing, because of course we've got to make sure that the vaccine is safe, 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 and that it works. But then by the time you get the data from the clinical trials, now you already have those millions of doses ready to go and you can start vaccinating. And that can shave many, many months off the timelines. So I think that is one thing that we're starting to get right. I, I hope that it happens. Uh, but otherwise, you know, there's no, like you said, there's no guarantee that, that the vaccine will actually work. But it's worth the risk. It's a risk we have to take. One of the things that has been pushed a lot is the idea of herd immunity. And then um, the president has pretty well acknowledged that by July we could have 135, 150,000 people dead, but says that's just the price of doing business. Is it that callous? Is it that cold? Is that, is that calculated? Or is there a way to avoid that many people dying? Well, you know, when we're facing a deadly virus that is this contagious, we're really stuck with crappy options. I mean, the options are you lock down and there's economic destruction, but you save lives. The other option is you try to open up, but almost every economist would tell you opening up isn't really going to work because people are afraid of dying. They're not going to want to go out to eat. They're not going to want to go to theme parks. They're not going to want to go to large gatherings. They're just not going to want to do that because they don't want to die. So that's, that is the problem here. So the choices are really awful, which is economic destruction, but you save lives or really, really awful, which is you try to open up, you still have economic destruction and many more people die. So there are no good choices here. I mean, what we, you know, what Trump seems to think is that if he ignores this and treats this like a pH crisis, a public, uh, sorry, a PR crisis, a, a public relations crisis, rather than the pH crisis, the public health crisis that it truly is, that magically this virus will go away. And he keeps saying that. I mean, like magic, it's just going to go away someday. Yeah, yeah, someday and millions of people dead. I mean, right. that's not how this works. So sticking his head in the ground and ignoring the threat is not helping anyone. It's making the problem much, much worse. And so, all right, so there's some really bad choices, but the worst choice then is to do, you're saying the worst choice is to do nothing and try to develop this herd um, uh, type of, I don't want to say herd mentality, but, but uh, uh, herd immunity. 
Well, yeah, I think that is the worst choice. And, and even worse, what Mr. Trump is doing is he's saying, I don't like the way the cases are being counted because it makes them look bad. So we are we are flying when you're flying blind. That's the worst thing you can do. Right. Is not have the testing in place, which is how we've been doing this all along. So you don't know where the hot spots flare up so that then you can't enact, you know, smaller lockdowns in, in hot zones. And so, you know, it's a it's a crisis of leadership in this country. That's the bottom line. I mean, we don't have supplies. We don't have testing. There's no plan. There's nothing. There's no coordination. It's a hot mess. And it, that comes from the top. And that's because Mr. Trump, you know, he does not want the truth. And that is the worst, worst, worst thing possible for everyone. Yeah, you said we've got to um, be just, we've got to be guided by the evidence and the data. Yeah, you said uh, on Sky News, I believe, uh, that Trump is going to try to spin this, but what he's going to find out is that you can't spin death. That's so absolutely. I said that. I said that two months ago, Brian, and I warned him. And that was that was when I was calling for nationwide lockdowns. I called for lockdowns in early March. Had we locked down then, we would have saved ninety percent of the lives that have been lost. Ninety. And by the way, that death toll that you're seeing. It's a fallacy. I mean, the number of cases, every expert would tell you that the true number of cases is about 10 to 15 times higher than what is being reported because of the massive under-testing. Now, part of that, a big part of that is Trump's ineptitude and, you know, just malfeasance and poor leadership. But part of that's just the nature of a fast-moving pandemic. Now, the number of deaths is also much higher than being reported. And, you know, the best estimate, this is coming from um, uh, epidemiologists from Yale, they're saying somewhere around one and a half times higher. Other epidemiologists uh, estimate that the number of deaths is twofold higher than what's being reported. So, would, you know, you can basically almost double that, that death toll. Anywhere between 100 and 150,000. And we've also seen um, evidence in other countries that the earliest cases of coronavirus occurred uh, much earlier than what is being reported. Does that throw some doubt onto where it was, where it originated, or is that uh, just that it, it it migrated much sooner? I think that it, it. I don't think that anybody really doubts that this uh, this really emerged from China, and that's based upon looking at the sequencing of the strains. So, you know, every virus, these viruses have these what I call mini mutations, these small minor mutations that don't make the virus more dangerous, they don't evade the immune system, but what they do allow is for the virologist to track the virus as it's spreading around the world. And based upon the sequencing of the virus, it's very clear that the virus emerged from Wuhan in China. Um, I do think that given, you, you know, Wuhan is, is a city of 11 million people. This is not a you know minor city and it's a transportation hub in China and the world is interconnected. So it, it, it doesn't surprise me whatsoever that, that those, there are cases much earlier. I know that uh, uh, Paris reported that they had a case in, in late December, a month before they ever confirmed their first case. And that's what we're going to see, Brian. And, you know, I, you know we know that, that people have had this virus. We know that it's been spreading in the community. And that's why if you aren't testing really aggressively and testing asymptomatic people, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. Because if you wait for that first patient to show up, like in, right. and die or get really, really sick. We know that that means you've had hundreds, if not thousands of cases. That virus has been circulating for weeks and weeks and weeks, if not months. Yeah, and I, so I go back to the fact that uh, we delayed in testing. We, we didn't 
test in the beginning where we've got our testing it's still not so that anybody can get tested unless you're the president he's getting tested daily there are other people who have not been able to be tested but the question therefore to me remains if we don't do the testing and we're going to let the lockdown ease aren't we inviting a disaster come summer and fall and you seem to be saying yes a thousand percent we're inviting a disaster and we did the same thing in 1918. So in 1918, the, the quote unquote Spanish flu pandemic, which is a misnomer by the way, that, that influenza did not originate in Spain. In fact, a lot of uh, scientists think that the, Kansas. the influenza originated right here, right, right, yeah, right yeah. here in the good old USA. In yeah. USA, in, yeah. Uh, I guess uh, we could have called it the Kansas uh, flu. Uh, remember, remember the, <laughs> the Kansas flu, the Kansas flu pandemic. There we go. So that the, that that first case was in March. Ding, ding, ding. Right. Similar to what we saw here, where we had our first case in January um, that was confirmed right in, in uh, the Washington state area. So what happened there is they sort of kind of tried to ignore it. There were di there were differences regionally. But there, were, there was a big push to say, gosh, we've got to have good morale for our troops, come to the parades, support, support our troops, and just like sticking their head in the ground. And then come September, that second wave started, and it was a massive wave. Eighty percent of the people who died in the Spanish flu pandemic, that would be 675,000 Americans, okay, more than died in all of World War I, so 80 percent of them died in the second wave and, and we're we're walking right into exact same trap and we're doing it with our eyes wide open that's the frustrating thing we know this is going to happen i mean i predicted that the southern hemisphere would light up look at what's happening right the, things are cooling off here virus wise as we go into summer it's not flu season so you know we're sort of relaxing things and people are going to get complacent is what's going to happen and then september is going to come and it's we're just the cases are going to soar they're going to explode one of the other things that seems that we've it's hard uh, to imagine how they don't brian yeah it, one of the things that i've seen um also if you look at the history of uh, that pandemic in in 1918 and 1919 one of the other things that i see repeating itself uh, is the the promulgation uh, promulgation of the um false cures like gargling with salt water staying out in the light or even as uh, the president said using disinfectant uh, by injecting it. How big of a problem is the false news in trying to deal with this particular um, pandemic? Um, it's hugely problematic, Brian, because, you know, you we've had people uh, causing calling poison control centers after ingesting disinfectants. I mean, uh, we've had we've had uh, people dying or having uh, near death from hydroxychloroquine, which uh, Trump has been touting with no evidence. In fact, all of the best studies have shown, if anything, hydroxychloroquine has caused more harm and more people have died. So there's no evidence that it actually helps. Um, I had somebody on a, uh, I was on a radio show last week and uh, the caller was desperately trying to convince me that honey was the be all end all cure because her throat felt better. Said, well, you know, the problem with that is that the virus gets deep in your lungs and kind of hard to get honey in the deep, deep parts of your lungs. You know? <laughs> so, you know, there's always people want to people want to believe that there's going to be this miraculous cure. And unfortunately not. I mean, we've got to wait for the vaccine and 
I, we're lucky that I think remdesivir and a few of these other antivirals will have their utility in seriously ill patients. Uh, but otherwise, it's, you know, we're, we just don't have much to help us here. It's not a good situation. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about remdesivir. And I also want to talk about some of the uh, viral things, continue the conversation about some of the false stuff going around, including from some of the anti-vaxxers. So stick around. We'll be back with uh, Dr. Grace just after this message. Hi, I am uh, Brian Kerman. We are back with Just Ask a Question and Dr. Dana Grayson. And Dr. Grayson, I guess uh, continuing the, uh, the question that we, we were, the, or the thread we were talking about before we went to commercial break was uh, remdesivir. Tell me a little bit about that and why that shows some uh, hope and what, what we can actually realistically expect out of this type of treatment. So remdesivir is in a class of medicines that blocks the ability of the virus to, to replicate its genetic code. So th this is an RNA virus, meaning it uses RNA, not DNA, as its genetic code. So to make new viruses, it's got to make an RNA to RNA copy. Now, we humans cannot do RNA to RNA copies. We are not able to do that. So that is like the ideal situation to target a drug to that mechanism. And um, I know some folks have kind of said, well, you know, I don't know how well this thing works. Actually, the results in that latest study are extremely, extremely impressive. I spent nearly a decade developing a very closely related drug called galadesivir, which is also in testing against uh, in, for COVID-19 in Brazil. And there's another drug called favipiravir, which is an approved drug in Japan that's also shown some promising results. So in this galadesivir study, it was done by the NIH, not by the company, it had an independent group of scientists evaluating the data, and it was what we call a randomized placebo-controlled trial. So patients um, and doctors were blinded. They had no idea if the patients got a placebo or if they got the active drug remdesivir. And then this independent data committee of scientists reviewed all the data. So this is as good as it gets with a clinical trial. And they, these patients were sick. Okay, These were hospitalized patients, seriously ill. They had been sick for a number of days. And the remdesivir treatment decreased the duration of symptoms by four days. And that is a huge, uh, that is incredibly, incredibly impressive. And let's put that in context. That'll keep I mean, them off a ventilator, right? That, that, that'll help keep well, the, the, the more serious cases. These patients were not critically ill. These patients right. were not critically ill. They were seriously ill in the hospital. But let's put it in the context, Brian, of, of Tamiflu. I think a lot, you know, a lot of your listeners know have heard of Tamiflu. It's for the treatment of influenza. Now that drug actually ha has to be given within 48 hours of onset of symptoms. It's it was it's only shown benefit in patients who are not hospitalized, okay? And it only decreased the duration of illness by 1.3 days. So the results for remdesivir are extremely extremely impressive. And, you know, that these were sick patients, they were in the hospital, they had been sick for a number of days, and yet they still decreased the duration of their illness by, by four days. So, I, you know, the, the, the place for that drug, I think what you're likely going to see it being used, it's not the be-all, end-all, but for high-risk patients that are going into the hospital, I think you're going to start seeing those patients, as Dr. Fauci said, remdesivir is now the new standard of care. They should, those are the patients that should get the drug, 
Um, and we're likely going to see over time, as this study continues to go, uh, there was a trend towards improved uh, survival. I think as they enroll more patients, they'll probably be able to show that as well. So I, you know, I think that's a, an important tool in the armamentarium. I think another important tool is going to be convalescent plasma. We've got some studies ongoing with that. That's taking uh, plasma from people who have survived COVID-19, and that plasma is the liquid part of your blood, and it's rich in antibodies to the virus. And essentially, you're giving passively immunizing another person. Um, so that that potential that that was actually tried way back in the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. So I think that that's a it's kind of an old school trick but I think it's very likely going to have some benefit. So we will have some tools as we head into this large second wave, which I think is going to be, as I said, much larger and more deadly than this ongoing first wave. But, you know, I, I just fear that it's not going to be enough. I just, uh, you know, can you I'm develop very a, concerned as we head into this second wave. Can you develop a vaccine from the antibodies of someone who's had uh, coronavirus? Well, you can't develop a vaccine, Brian, but what you can do is you can actually engineer a drug. So instead of, you know, these survivors, we can't bleed them dry. So what you can do is you can engineer an antibody that you can make in the lab that is, is essentially a copy of their antibody. You can take their, their immune cells and basically engineer a cell line that can start manufacturing, pumping out tons and tons of quantities of the antibody. And I know that China has already started that process. So that's, that could be another way where essentially you're, you, know, you have engineered antibodies that you can then administer. We have plenty of medicines out there already that are engineered antibodies. So this is a tried and true method. So I think that if the convalescent plasma shows promise, I think you're, you, you know, we, we potentially could see some of these engineered antibodies as well uh, becoming available. But it does take time to, to ramp up production of that. So, we'll so give us a sort of, you know, everything's a race against this virus. Right. So give us a worst case and best case scenario going into the fall. Well, the best case scenario would have been that we had locked down earlier, that we could have gotten our hands around, you know, this outbreak like Australia has. Australia, I think, has really done a fabulous job. Um, and but we, we aren't there. So the best case scenario right now is that we head into the second second wave, uh, averaging twenty five to thirty thousand confirmed cases a day, which in reality is 250,000 to 300,000 confirmed cases a day and not 2,000 deaths per day. We know that it's one and a half to two times higher. So 3,500 to 4,000 deaths per day. So that looks like it's probably the best case scenario, which is a horrible case scenario. Uh, I, I my, The best case scenario is that governors, um, because I know we can't rely on our federal government, unfortunately, but that governors will lock down early and often um, and save lives. The worst case scenario is that we have a redux of what just happened um, this past wave or this ongoing wave, I should say, Brian. And but the problem is, is the baseline is, you know, many, many, many times higher, meaning we're, we're walking into this week. The last wave we walked into, we had zero cases. OK, this wave, we're going to walk in with a baseline of 250 to 300,000 new cases each and every day. So you can imagine the size of the tsunami. Um, you know, the hope is that we do keep ramping up testing so that uh, uh, elected officials and scientists are not flying blind and that then we lock down very aggressively and early and we spare lives. But it's hard to imagine how we aren't going to have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans die in this second wave, if not really getting it to the millions um, over the million mark. It's I'm really, really concerned. 
And uh, and it, that sounds frightening, but part of the problem, I think, is the ignorance uh, and the willful ignorance about what you need to do to combat the virus. And when we look and see there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there, um, you've got the president recommending that we, you know, inject disinfectant, which sounds horrible. Uh, but there are those who believe that A, it's a hoax, B, that it was started in some, or B, that it was started in some lab in, in China. And uh, so how do you, I mean, let's talk about both of those. A, is it a, a, a hoax? Or B, was it started purposely or by accident in a lab in China? And I, I don't know what it matters Either way, we still got to deal with it, but a lot of people are caught up with that, and you see violent protesters who are going out armed in like the state house in Michigan and wanting to, you know, protesting against being locked down and saying they're losing their freedoms. How do you address that? Uh, well, I mean, that's a, that's a lot there. So, <laughs> yeah, first that's of a all, lot to you, unpack. You know, this is clearly clearly not a hoax. Clearly not a hoax. Clearly not a hoax. You can you can. Um, you can look at the drone footage, right? Looking over the mass burial sites um, in our own country. So when you have, uh, you know, we, we're well over the 100,000 dead mark in this country, very likely based again, based upon excess death toll um, around the country. So it's clearly not a hoax. So I'd encourage those people to talk to the families of those who've lost their loved ones. Um, now with respect to where the virus came from, this is a, the typical distraction deflection uh, method of Mr. Trump to d distract and deflect from, you know, fill in the blank, his corruption, ineptitude, his willful ignorance, his, you know, you know, the fact that he's got the blood of tens of thousands of Americans on his hands. So he's trying to distract and deflect from this. And it's, it's, it's very problematic. I mean, the Australian government in particular is really frustrated by this because they have been pushing for an international inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus. And the reason for this is we got to stop the. There's going to be another pandemic. I mean, this is this is the other thing I, I really hope that people understand is that, you know, we've had multiple shots on goal by these viruses. Okay, we had SARS in 2003. We had bird flu in 2005. We had swine flu in 2009. We had Ebola in 2013. I mean, it goes. We had the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, another coronavirus. Okay. The vast majority of these, with the exception of Ebola and MERS, they all came from one place, China, China, China. So why is that? There's very likely you've got this high density of people, encroachment on wild animals. You have these wet markets, these wildlife markets. That's the likely underlying issue here. And that's what Australia wants to get to the bottom of so we can prevent the next global pandemic. Because it's not just China's problem, as we're seeing. It's the world's problem. So this, this push to say, oh my God, it came from a lab. And you know, if it did, then we certainly wanna know that. I think that uh, it, it seems very unlikely. Um, all of the virologists I speak with say that they do not believe based on the genetic evidence that this was an engineered virus that accidentally leaked from the lab in Wuhan. Now that to me is more of an intelligence issue. I don't think that anyone thinks, for example, China did this on purpose. Uh, that lab itself is very has a is, is very problematic. Has major safety issues. To me, that's sort of a separate issue and important issue. I don't want to, but it shouldn't distract from the fact that we've had these naturally occurring respiratory viruses coming from one place, China, that have threatened the world, and it's going to keep happening. So that's the bottom line here, and we can't distract from that, and and we can't let China off the hook. 
And, you know, I think that by Trump, by doing this and coming and pushing this, this theory, and I don't want to call it a conspiracy theory, because again, I think that it's within the realm of possibility. It's very, very unlikely, and it should be investigated, but it's distracting from the very real known issue that we've had all these near misses of viruses, and these viruses are going to keep trying. They get billions of shots on goal each and every day, and they're going to keep trying and trying and trying, and we're going to see another pandemic threat and another pandemic threat. So we've got to figure out what's going on here and, and crack down on China to get them to knock this crap off. And so, and then the other, before we go to break, the other thing that we were talking about are, are those who are the violent protesters who say, look, I'm tired of being locked down. Social distancing doesn't matter. Uh, we need to lead our lives. These, well, these COVID idiots, these COVID idiots are out there without masks. Okay. And, and what we're going to see is we're going to start seeing some of these COVID idiots drop dead. They're going to get coronavirus. It's a matter of time and numbers. They're not wearing masks. They're gathering in large groups. They're being, you know, it, 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 so what's going to happen? I mean, it's just like that guy in, in Ohio, right? The guy who was who had that Facebook to- post um, scorching his his Republican governor, saying, you know, this is BS. He doesn't have the authority to lock down the state. Two weeks later, he caught the virus and then he died. Okay, and and you know, it's sort of we're going to see the same thing happen with these protesters. They're out there. They're you know not wearing masks. The vast majority of them. And it's not, it's just a matter of time and numbers before people start getting sick, they infect their loved ones and some, and people start dying. And again, it's not flu season, but they start doing this crap in September and October and people are going to die. Well, and, and on that cheery note, we're, <laughs> we're, we're gonna, <laughs> we'll, we'll take another break and we'll be right back. We're back with Dr. Grayson and, and, and uh, Doc. <laughs> let me ask you this: a couple of final thoughts. I, I usually don't let anybody off the show until they tell me who their favorite uh, uh, rock and roll uh, uh, artist is. So I got to ask you that for on a lighter. Moment. Oh, that's easy, Neil Young. Neil Young, Neil Young man. you're a Neil Young uh, fan. Yes, I'm a huge Neil Young fan, and I haven't gotten to meet him personally, but I did. I'm a huge Crosby, Stills, and Nash fan as well, and got to got to hang out with Stephen Stills. Uh, after a concert, who is just one of the most delightful human beings I've ever met, um, and was a real honor. He's he's a big fan of my husband's, who is a member of Congress, and so uh, they were having a concert, and he said, "Come on, the tour bus." I was like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> this is amazing!" <laughs> so, Mr. Cool. Mr. Huh? Soul by Buffalo Springfield. That's you like that one? That's a great. I love that song. Yeah, I, I start singing, but I don't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> And, and to, <laughs> we'll go back to being a, a serious for a moment because we've been serious for the last hour. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this. Um, if you had the ear of the president right now and, I, and, and could actually get him to oh, do God. something. Yeah, right. Oh, God. Um, what would you tell him that this country needs to do come, going into this summer? What, what are the three steps you think we need to take to, to, to do something about this virus? Well, first of all, I don't think I'd get very close to his ear because I'd be within groping distance. So, uh, <laughs> <but> hey now. <laughs> so I mean, you know, but well, okay. So first of all, testing, testing, testing. We need a hyper aggressive testing program. If we really want to reopen. 
We got to test, 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 test. And you got to test everybody. And you got to test people who are asymptomatic. This is so important. And there's some really novel approaches we can do. There's things where you can actually test whole households, like, or neighborhoods, right? From sewage. Okay. Looks like maybe the virus comes out in sewage. Maybe we start testing sewage lines. So then we ice it up. We know this neighborhood's got it. All right. Then you can go door to door and say, we're going to want coronavirus tests. You know, I mean, in New York, before you can get on the subway, before you can go into any kind of public area, you got to have a test every day. You know, there's got to be ways that we can do this, that we could then start to think about reopening potentially. But the first thing you got to do is we got to get this first wave to end. Okay. If we're heading into next flu season with 250, 300,000 new cases a day, again, assuming that the, the true number of cases is about tenfold higher, which is, I think, a good metric, you know, that's the first thing. Get the number of cases down. Number two, if you start reopening, reopen regionally slowly with very, 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 very aggressive testing. And then lastly, I think that, um, you know, we've got to just, we need a like a, I don't want to call it a Manhattan project because I don't want to build a bomb here, but we need that kind of approach towards the vaccines and we need it yesterday. We need it yesterday. And the, the, the vaccines need to be free for all Americans. If we're paying for it and we're taking all the risks, then we get it for free. It seems to me that and one of the things that no one has addressed yet, and I've tried to ask questions about are the uninsured and the homeless. And it seems like those the, the, those with the least among us are those that are most vulnerable to this. Is that does that ring true? Is that frightening? Is, I mean, how do you address that particular Abs- issue? Absolutely, 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 Brian. I mean, we're seeing this not just with the homeless, with the uninsured, but also people of color, people who have low socioeconomic status who may even have insurance, but they have jobs where they can't stay home. You know, they're on the front lines, whether working at the grocery stores or working in other areas where they have to interact with people um, and they can't take off work or they're afraid to take off work. I mean, just look at our meatpacking plants. Well, yeah, look and a lot of those people plants. that work in they're the meat... They're getting decimated. Yeah, and a lot of those people are... Uh, um, I, I don't want to cast, you know, I don't want to dis- disparage an entire pot, but there are a lot of illegal immigrants who work in that industry. Those are not well-paid jobs. Those are, uh, those are not... Yeah. And I and they're soul crushing jobs. They're yeah. soul crushing jobs. These are, you know, you think about what what's going on in a meat pack, a slaughterhouse. I mean, this is a soul crushing job. And these and these folks were, you know, there's there's story after story after story of people who work there who try to wear a mask and they were told you can't wear a mask because you're freaking everyone else out, and then they die. I mean, you know, now we've got this meat shortage in the country, which was very predictable. I mean, this was I. You know, this was a very, very predictable event, and here we are. It's, you know, I. By the way, one other thing that uh, the government still has not done, which is irks me to no end, Brian, is we still have not ramped up the production of PPE. Right. And there's, we are having a shortage of PPE now. How is it going to be in the fall? I mean, and these are my friends and colleagues, nurses and doctors on the front line, front lines. They're heroes. They're heading in there. And they're having to reuse PPE. I mean, it's so dangerous and hazardous. And we still haven't wrapped this stuff up. I mean, you know, we, you know, we're the United States of America. We can't like get enough gloves and masks and gowns. I mean, no, they're all made in China. They're, they're all made in the Wuhan well, province. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And then you think China's going to want to be sending that stuff to us or selling it to us as a, 
you know, they're going to have their own hot zone. I mean, right. they're going to be back in the hot zone next, um, you know, next blue season. Um, well, let's close this out on a, on a hopefully a, a, a more upbeat note. I, I like to keep hope alive whenever possible. But um, what three things would you recommend to people, if you could boil it down to three, if just in your own life, what what can you do, what can the average person do themselves to limit their risk of catching this virus? Wash, wash, wash those hands. I, that's huge. Um, if everyone wears a mask when they go outside, that'll help protect everyone. And stay home. Stay home as much as you can. You know, if you, if you can stay home, stay home. If you've got to work, wear a mask and wash your hands. Don't touch your face. And social you distancing? Know, and try to help out physical distancing. Yeah. Mean, staying home. I call it, you know, Brian, I, I hate this term. I hate this term, social distancing. It's wrong. It's so wrong. Physical <laughs> it sounds like your dance right? sounds like something you do at a dance. <laughs> I was social yeah, distancing. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. And also, honestly, I think it freaks people out. I have so many people say to me, Dr. Dina, like, you know, I feel so lonely. And with all the social distancing, I'm like, hey, no way. We're going to be physically distant, but we're going to be social. I mean, that's <laughs> where like we're on Zoom right now. Yeah. You know, all these great apps that we have that we can leverage those to stay you know, socially connected while we stay physically apart. I mean, that's that, you know, I had a date like that once are relaxing, be smart folks. <laughs> I definitely had a couple of dates like that. <laughs> <laughs> TMI. Yeah. That's, <laughs> well, listen, uh, Dr. Grayson, I appreciate your time and I hope we can do this again sometime. I, I'd love to have you back to talk further if you're up for it. Oh, totally, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on. I just, you're a total hero. I, uh, I think you've got a, you, you know, you have a huge fan base whenever you're there uh, asking at the White House, asking Trump questions and, and holding him accountable. So thanks for all the great stuff that you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of hair before I started this. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know. I pulled a, yeah, I pulled a lot of it out. <laughs> well, <laughs> Uh, well, thanks again. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.